Father, has, has, has already been mentioned where we're looking into your word. Uh, Lord, we, we long to receive this as a message for us. Uh, so, rightly so, we ask that you would remove barriers from our minds, whether distraction, uh, whether even myself, and that we would just hear what you have to say. And we trust your spirit to help us in this process, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got, we're starting this morning a series on, on 1 Corinthians, and I especially just want to prelude that with, with why we're doing 1 Corinthians. So what is the church meant to be? What's the church meant to look like? Apologies if the slides are a bit glary. What are our priorities meant to be? Um, how should we live in the culture that we live in that's, that's so sexualized at times and so polarized at other times? How do we live in a way that honors God with, with our lives, with our bodies, with our consciences? How do we uh, honor Him in the way we meet for worship? We've looked a bit of that in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 several months ago. How do we worship God? How do we function as a church? I think 1 Corinthians gives us the answer to these and, and many other questions. Paul, through inspiration of the Spirit, about over 1,900 years ago, uh, addressed a church with some of these questions that they had about these things. And uniquely, it's addressed to all believers at all times, as we'll see in a minute. So we should pay, pay very close attention to what this letter says. It's not just for a church that was nearly 2,000 years ago, it's to the church now, and it's for City Reach Marion now. Because we're in a unique season as well. The church at Corinth had been in a unique season. They were established and formed and, and started. Paul and some other great leaders were there. And then they had to move on. So what was left behind? So the start of of Corinth in Acts chapter 18, if you read a bit of the, the history there, shows that Paul spent a, a fair bit of time there. He was there nearly a year and a half establishing this church and doing that with, with others. Priscilla and Aquila were there, as was Apollos, uh, we would assume. Most of the time, Paul spent initially just reaching Jews. He was in the synagogue to begin with, but Acts chapter 18 shows that they were, he was rejected in the synagogue and thrown out. So he literally shook, shake off the dust, he was a swifty before some others, shook it off and said, I'm going to the Gentiles from here on in. And he had a very productive ministry in Corinth, a year and a half of establishing this church. And in that process, Jesus actually comes to him, Acts chapter 18, you can read this, Jesus comes to him and gives him visions like, Take courage, be strong, keep going in this ministry. There's many in this place that be belong to me. Uh, the location of Corinth is, is quite unique in some ways. Uh, it's a key point of trade, of commerce. Um, those of you who like geography would, would look at it and say it's, it's located uniquely. It's located on that little isthmus. I'm not saying that properly anyway, but you can pretend that I didn't put too many S's in there. But that little, there's a peninsula there and there's an isthmus that, that crosses over. There's, it's about six and a half kilometres wide, apparently. And they used to, instead of going, the boats all going all the way around the bottom of Greece, they sometimes used to 
port in there and actually carry everything inland, sometimes the boats on rollers, apparently, which would have been something to see. But either way, it was a boom town. There was lots of people. It was a diverse community, a transient community. People were moving through all the time. It, had, it was a, a city full of everything that you could think of. A Roman sort of town, but in, a, in Greece. Mostly made up in a population that was freed slaves. It was, it was a very different kind of environment. People were getting rich very quickly, so it was big class divides, as you'll see as we go through the rest of 1 Corinthians. When we think of the letter of 1 Corinthians as a whole, um, it's, it's far more structured than we might like to think. As you read through it in a sitting, you feel like Paul's just jumping from topic to topic. About this, about that, what you said about this. But it's really uh, well thought out. There's a, there's a reason Paul goes through the process he does. There, there's indication, if you look at chapter 5, verse 9, this is actually the second letter that Paul has written to these people which makes this 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians, just to make it confusing for us. We don't know what was in that first letter, but we know little hints that there'd been messages backwards and forwards. Paul had spent a long time there, and then he had continued to try and support them with teaching through letters, and they had sent messages back. So this letter that we have in front of us is responding to some of the statements that they've made about his teaching, about his letter. He's also responding to reports that have been brought to him. We see that in verse uh, 11, as was read for us this morning. Start of chapter 4, chapter 5 will mention as well, this, this actually has been reported to me that you're doing this. So he's responding to things they've said, responding to things they're doing that they told, haven't told him about, but he's hearing about. How Paul does this, though, is very, very he doesn't give the Corinthians a list of don't do this, do this. There's a bit of that in there. But whenever he does that, he does it with a solid theological base. And part of the structure of Corinthians, it's, it's very gospel-centred, but the bookends of the gospel. There's, he starts off with emphasising the cross, that you've been brought with a price, you belong to God. And he finishes with this wonderful uh, study of the resurrection, that Christ is risen and you have new life and you have hope. So he looks at the gospel and says, this is essential for everything you're going to do and need in life. And here it is. You're doing this, that's based on a wrong understanding of who God is and the gospel. Here's the right understanding now, out of that, live this way. So it's just a bit of a quick overview of the whole book in this first section, so sort of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 4, uh, Paul is sort of, he deals, he's mainly dealing with reports of division in the church that people have reported to him. People are divided against themselves, but they're also divided against Paul. They're standing up against him and his authority. So he hits this on the head in the first chapter. He hits this topic right between the eyes in some ways. The way he does that in his first verses uh, is he, he gives us a definition of the church. He uh, is thankful for the church and then he appeals for unity in the church. So that's what we want to look at this morning. And firstly, this definition. 
of the church. You can't correctly define what the church is, who the church is, without understanding uh, its earliest teachings and the apostles' teaching. That is what the church is founded on. Now, you can learn a lot by how someone introduces themselves. In a previous work environment, I met many self-proclaimed apostles. Um, it was an interesting context, but you met lots of people during the day, all of whom would profess to you for various things. Sometimes it was really encouraging. Other times you met some interesting people. And sometimes I met people who proclaimed to be apostles, but also members of the Trinity. So it was an interesting environment. You can learn a lot about someone how, by how they introduce themselves. Paul here introduces himself as an apostle. And when he does that, some of us have different reactions to that. So is Paul going to claim an authority over me that I don't want him to claim? Or is Paul claiming authority that doesn't belong to him? Is he self-appointed? Well, we have to think about that. He opens this letter in this way because he, he establishes this is a God-given authority called by the will of God to be an apostle. Called by the will of God to be an apostle. He's establishing that God has given this. This is a specific authority that God has given to Paul. He's, he's not self-appointed. And he's not even an apostle in the general sense of the word. You could just say an apostle is a messenger of God who speaks out the word of God, sharing the good news of Jesus. All, all believers, in a sense, are called to be an apostle in the general sense of sharing the message of Jesus. Paul here, though, is an apostle in a specific and very unique sense. He's called directly by God. He's someone who's seen the risen Lord. He's commissioned by Jesus to reach specifically the Gentiles, the non Jews with the gospel. He has special authority as someone who would understand and instruct others in the doctrines of Christ, the teachings of Christ. So when we think about how the church is founded on the apostles' teaching, this is not because they made something up and then managed to convince a bunch of people that this was true. No, but this is because God has called them by His specific will commission them with a special authority to be Jesus' mouthpieces uh, after his ascension. And this is an important thing because I'm only spending a lot of time on the first couple of words because later in this letter, Paul has to deal with this. They're questioning his authority. Chapter 4 and chapter 9, we'll see that in more detail. I hinted at it earlier, but even today this is still an issue. Paul's authority is is still questioned. The apostles' teaching is still questioned, even today. There's, there's a lot of talk of the deconstruction, of people who are deconstructing their faith. Most of that just means tearing apart. When you think of deconstruction, it's, it's not anything constructive in it usually. You're, you're taking something and pulling it apart. And one of the big things that people want to do is pull apart. Well, Paul, that was just Paul's opinion. That was just what Paul said to that specific time and location. We have to be very careful when we start to think that way. No, that's actually what God called them to teach and instruct. It's what Christ commissioned them to teach and instruct. So 
that Paul is an apostle called by the will of God, not self-appointed. He's with his brother, or as he says, our brother, Sosthenes. We don't know too much about this, this guy other than he's got a cool name. Back in Acts chapter 18, again, there is a Sosthenes there, right at the end of the little uh, section on Corinth. There is a, a leader of the synagogue who is beaten and abused before uh, the council, the town council, because we, we don't actually know. He's just beaten. We, from this, would assume he's beaten because he's, he's joined Paul's side. He'd be the second leader of the synagogue in Corinth to do that. Uh, one of the other um, names mentioned here, Crispus, was also one of the first and earliest converts, also a leader of the synagogue in Corinth. But Sosthenes, we know, is here with Paul. We know he's a man who was unjustly beaten. He's willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. He's also someone who knows Corinth, knows the context, knows the people. So he can write with Paul, or at least agree with Paul and what he's directing the Corinthians to say. If you've got, please do have your Bibles open, as you can see we're, we're moving through verse 1. Now we're in verse, verse 2, Paul starts to define who he's talking to. Who is Paul intending to receive this letter? How does he define the church? Well, firstly, he said the church of God that's in Corinth. It's a local place. It's a geographical location. There might have been multiple meeting places for the church in Corinth, but it's fixed in a local place. These are people with a unique context, situation, issues. He's writing to a local church. Then he goes on to say that those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. These are people that are, the church is made up of the people who are, are set apart. They're different, they're unique, peculiar, as King James would put it. We're weird in a good way. A people who are distinct from the people they live amongst is who he's writing to. To be holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified. It's a key theme that Paul will continue in this uh, letter to unpack. The church is a temple. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And God, God calls those who follow his son to be like him be holy as he is holy and it's both a, a declaration those who are in Christ are holy but they're also being made holy they're called to be saints they're sanctified they are set apart they're already declared to be something but they're also calling God is calling to them to be saints then Paul goes on the end of that verse, to say, call to be saints together, together with all, all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church is local, the church is made up of saints who are becoming saints. The church is also global and historical. The church is made up of those who are in every place place, everywhere, at every time, who call on the name of Jesus, they're part of the church. So, I trust this morning that you're sitting here in a different place to Corinth, at a different time to Corinth, as a different people from Corinth, but those of you in this place that have called on the name of Jesus as Saviour are 
the church. So the church then is local, global, historical, and made up of a sanctified people who are becoming more and more like Christ. That's how the church is defined by Paul here. Often our wrong view of church, a wrong view of church, is, is granted a wrong definition of church. Church that's founded on anything but Christ and the Apostles' teaching is not a church. A church that isolates itself from nearly every other church is not a church. A church that does not confess Jesus Christ as Lord is not a church. A church is not built on one person who other people follow, it's built on Christ and those who follow Him. It's built on the belief of Christ's death and resurrection. As Ephesians 4 verse 5 speaks to us about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is what is called the, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering together of those who confess Jesus as Lord. As what theologians would call a communion of saints, what old creeds would, would call us to. That is what we are part of when we follow Jesus. So this is just a, a brief way of encouraging you to stop and just meditate for a moment. Do you confess Christ as Lord and do you meet with others who do the same? Are you part of this church as Paul defines it? Paul goes on in verses 4 to, to 9 to give thanks for this church at Corinth. And um, we might think, well, what's he got to give thanks for? If you've read all of 1 Corinthians, you'll start to automatically call to mind. He's giving thanks for some people who do some pretty horrible things. He's giving thanks for some people that are, are not exactly great in the way they express their faith or their holiness as they're called to be. I'm sure you've heard of the compliment sandwich. Um, we're always trying to balance out a negative with two positives. I think that's often done just so so disingenuously that it actually defeats the purpose. You know, I like your socks. You could be a better human being, but I like the way your socks compliment your shoelaces, something like that. Something completely not helpful. Paul gives thanks for the church at Corinth, and it's not a disingenuous thanks. It's actually a genuine thing. I give thanks to my God always for you. How can he do that? This church is rejecting his authority. It's rejecting the priority of the message he has to share. Some of them are living in horrid, sinful, sexual immorality. There's full of division. They're abusing the gifts of grace that God's given. And yet Paul gives thanks. How can he do that? Well, Paul can do that because his thanksgiving for them is grounded, notice, in what God's done for them. Give thanks to my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you're enriched in Him. He gives thanks because of God's grace given to them in Jesus. God's grace has saved them. God's grace has enriched them 
through the gifts that have been given to them for the functioning of the church and the equipping and building up of the body of the church. And God's grace is actually sustaining them for when Jesus returns. Paul's answer, I suppose, if you put it that way, to the problems at Corinth is not that he tears everything down. It's not that it's gotten so bad that we just sort of deconstruct it or throw it away and we start again. Or not that it's got so bad, it's like we'll go somewhere else and we'll just, we'll get it right this time. No, his, his answer here is that the church needs to revive itself with understanding the depths of God's grace to them. How wonderful it is that they've been saved, they're being enriched by the gifts of the Spirit, and they're being sustained while they wait for Jesus to come back. So you just need to remind yourselves of what you have. God's grace has worked, is working, will work in the lives of these people at Corinth. They're called to be saints. They're purchased by the blood of Christ. So that's God's character that provides a guarantee of who the church really is. And despite the failures of many, that's why even our failures in the church and our sin and our abuse of what God's given us at times, we're still the church. We're still a church, still recipients of grace, and God's still faithful. That's, that's really encouraging because we will fail as a church, and we will fail as individual members of a church. The leadership of this church is not perfect. I hate to let anybody down that has other, other ideas about that. There will be failures, and those failures may affect our testimony, may affect our witness but our sustaining comes from God's grace. comes from God's grace. doesn't come from our own abilities. comes from God's gift, what He's enriched us with. So how thankful are we for church? How thankful are we for church? Not just the doctrine of the church, not just the head knowledge of the church, not just scriptural knowledge of the church. How thankful are we for church? Because sometimes our thankfulness doesn't extend past whether our personal taste has been met, or our preferences, or our opinion, or the coffee beans. We're thankful when people up front just wear socks that match their shoelaces. That's, that's what we're thankful for. When the songs or the service, parts of the service, just, just sit right. We're comfortable. That's when we're thankful. When the sermon goes a certain length. Apologies for that. How thankful are we for church? Our thankfulness should be displayed, not displayed in compliment sandwiches or disingenuous compliments, but should be displayed in genuine gratefulness for what God is doing in other people's lives, what God is doing in the body. In the testimony of others who give God glory, that's why we have testimonies in our church, 
so people can hear and know God is at work, has been at work, will be at work. We can give thanks for that, for what Jan shared this morning, what others have shared, what you know others are going through because you know them and you love them. We can give thanks for that. We give thanks for those who are enduring suffering, trusting in the sustaining power and enriching gifts of God's grace and his spirit. We give thanks for the church by praising God for his grace, for his gifts. What does it mean exactly? Well, thanksgiving, but I think we need, and I need to learn to look for what God is doing. Learn to look for what God is doing before focusing on what you prefer people would do differently. Because when you begin to to focus on the, the right things, who's saved us, who's giving us gifts, who's sustaining us, who will keep us guiltless, that's all God's work. When we start to focus and give thanks for that, we start to enter full fellowship with his son. This true blessing of being joined together with Christ, with others who are joined together with Christ, this beauty of doing life together. This fellowship in verse 9, as it's put by one commentator, Paul Gardner, he calls it a covenantal participation. You enter into trusting the promises of God and, and trusting in his grace. So you participate in his grace because we each have gifts to give one another. God will provide all that we need. We place him first and place ourselves in his grace. This fellowship, though, this fellowship in Jesus Christ comes with requirements. The people that live under the lordship of Christ should demonstrate and live by the unity he demands. People that live under the lordship of Christ should demonstrate and live by the unity he demands. And this is what Paul moves in to speaking of. In this next section, verses 10 to 17, he has an appeal for unity in the church. Now, several months ago, uh, I, I purchased a pair of pants, which does, is, it's not really news to anybody, that's not what you need to know. But this pair of pants I became very attached to. You might be familiar with them, I don't know. But you can at least identify. You've got a pair of clothing or some items of clothing that are they're just it. It's not just that they fit, it's just they're comfortable. And you don't care how much you wear them, they're just comfortable. So you wear them everywhere. I wore these pants everywhere. I love them so much I bought another pair, just so I didn't have to go without, in a different colour, just so I didn't have to go without the lack of comfort while I'm being washed once a month. <laughs> Imagine my disappointment. Uh, just a, a week or so ago when I found an irreparable tear in my pants. I, I, was, I was devastated. There's, there's, something, there's something unnatural about things that are meant to be joined together being torn apart. 
can take that analogy in all sorts of different places that you want to. Things that should be left unseen are sometimes seen. Paul's answer here to a torn apart people. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. His appeal was that they would agree and be of the same mind and same judgment, that they'd have the same heart, the same discernment, that they would fit together, that they would be joined together. That's what agreement is, where you join together in fullness, unites together in the name of Christ. Paul and his occupation in Corinth while he was there with Aquila and Priscilla was as a tent maker. He was, he was accustomed with working with material and putting pieces that were otherwise apart together. He knew how useless it was when they were torn. Things that are torn need to be mended. And Paul here, his appeal by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is that people would agree that brothers and sisters in the church would agree. He's not appealing for... It was take a step back and what he's not maybe appealing. What is unity and what isn't it? He's not appealing for uniformity of all things because not all of us are the same. Not all of us should be the same. That's part of what we get to in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We are different. There's differences and that's good. The church is diverse in its makeup of people but also in the giftings that those people have. So he's not appealing for agreement on every single thing, not in matters of conscience, not even in matters of thought in every situation. He's appealing for a unity that displays a loving agreement, a loving disposition towards agreement, to the things, agreement on the things that matter, the primary things, the most important things must have agreement. And unity for the church comes from the united purpose of proclaiming Jesus and his work, as you'll begin to unpack. The reports come. This is the first thing that Paul is responding to in this letter, is this report that's come from, from Chloe's people. And we don't know exactly who Chloe was. She clearly had people, whether there was people in her home that met for church. She was clearly some sort of leader that Paul trusted. Paul trusted the report that came from Chloe's people. These people report that there's divisions, there's fighting, there's quarrelling. UFC has broken out. There's something going on that has caused a fight, an ongoing fight. <coughs> a, a divided church is a, is a horrible picture. This is what's happening here at Corinth. Divided church is a distracted church. They won't know entirely what's going on and they won't be focusing on what they should be focusing on. A divided church is a weakened church. They're not going to be battling the right things. They'll be open to temptations of sin because they'll be too, so busy fighting one another. They're not fighting sin, not striving for holiness. A divided church is an ineffective church. Nothing will really be growing. Nothing will really be happening. And this happens when we make something or someone other than Christ our focus or the purpose of our meeting. 
fall into temptation of pride and arrogance and division, even immorality. And we begin to excuse ourselves from this holy calling to be saints everywhere in all places at all times with all those who profess and confess the name of Christ. We forget that and we just fight. What was the division? It's been reported, Chloe's people is quarrelling among you mothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Factions were being built around people, around individuals. Some aligned themselves with Paul, some with Apollos, some with Cephas. Others aligned themselves with Christ. It sounds strange that Paul seems to be breaking out those factions as negative things, and he still has a group that aligns themselves with Christ. Maybe they're where those who just go, knock it off, you lot. Christ is there, maybe they had it right. But maybe there were some that's like, no, we've, we've got it. It's all the rest of you. They were fighting everybody else because they had the truth. They were the remnant, maybe. But all these others that are involved, Paul and by inference, Apollos and Cephas, who's uh, Peter... It's clearly they're not part of this. They didn't go to this church and say, hey, you should align yourself with me. None of them did this. So people seem to have um, joined themselves to, to, these, to these men based on preferences or, or needs or whatever it was. Maybe it was someone they were culturally connected with. Maybe they are more familiar with with someone like Apollos, because he'd been there a long time. Maybe there were some there that were converted from Judaism that were, were Jews. Maybe they affiliated more with Peter, who'd come up, possibly from Jerusalem, and taught them. Maybe they're like Paul, just because of his depth of knowledge of Scripture. All these sorts of things, you don't, we don't exactly know. Maybe it was just the kind of speaker they preferred. There certainly seems an inference to that as Paul goes on to talk. They didn't like his style of speaking. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't big-worded. He didn't have the sophistry, the wisdom of the age that some people like to align themselves with. Whatever the reason was, they clearly esteemed some over others and fought with with whoever disagreed with their camp, their tribe. And especially aligned themselves, it seems, with with those who had baptised them. As Paul goes on to talk... I'm glad I didn't baptise many of you. That way you don't have a reason for this, this falsehood, this false alignment. Who baptises you is not the point, he says. There's a big lesson, I think, for us here, as a church, as individuals. We live in a very polarised world, where there's different opinions on the end, both ends of the spectrum. And we, we gravitate to certain leaders. We attach ourselves to certain schools of thought. We see this in political and social matters. And even this week, you could have turned on the radio or read a newspaper article or read an article online or watched a video or anything where there would have been different ends of the spectrum on the debate of Australia Day. You would have some that say, change the date. You'd have some on the other say, we need to be sensitive and think about changing it. The polarisation is there, and anyone who disagrees with them is foolish. But this is not just 
a political or social issue, and you can't just say it's a social media issue. That's not just where it happens. It happens everywhere because this is a human heart issue. We're drawn to people that we're most familiar with. We're also drawn to those we want to connect with. We're drawn to those we trust. And each of us are drawn to these people that we trust and voices that we trust based on our own preferences and our own bias. And we all have bias. And this leads to polarisation division. And we do this in the church. And most of the divisions in the church are the same, formed in the same way. We align ourselves with a school of thought or an historical person or figure that we connect with, that we appreciate, that we trust. And we become, they're the only ones that speak the truth. And we like, we like, I say we love our tags. Baptist, Brethren, Pentecostal, Anglican, non-denominational, still a tag. Calvinist, Wesleyan, dispensational, covenantal, whatever tag, we, we affiliate with these things because they make us comfortable. We're quick to align ourselves with those who affiliate with the same tribe. We do this in our churches to, I think, the exact opposite instruction of what Paul instructs here. We only listen to certain preachers or teachers or authors. They're the ones that have the truth. They're the ones that explain it in just the right way. Everybody else has got it wrong. Paul points out to those at Corinth that allegiance to men instead of Christ will lead to fighting and division. It'll lead to error. It'll lead to pride. And those who love to debate secondary issues must recognise that this unity is caused when we align ourselves with specific schools of thought, with certain people above Christ. So what's the answer to this? Paul's correction to this, these factions, this thinking, comes in the form of asking some rhetorical questions. Rhetorical question is when you ask the question and you know what the response should be, at least that's how it's meant to work, isn't it? Sort of. He, he exposes that a lot of this behaviour is grounded in poor theology. What they're doing is grounded in a poor theology, has led to these divisions, this factionalism, this polarisation. Is Christ divided? Is his first one. So do you think that the person, work and body of Christ is divided? Of course, no, he's not. Christ is not in opposition or contradiction to himself. He's not in opposition or contradiction to the whole counsel of God's word. He is one, his body is one. Was Paul crucified for you? The Corinthians had a view in presenting it in such a way that they were holding these men up as their saviours. And Paul corrects that. He said, your view is cheapening the atonement. What you're doing is lessening what Christ has done. You're emptying the cross of Christ of its power to save. 
No one else has died for you. No one else can die for your sin. No one else can make you right with God or holy. Paul was not crucified for you. Apollos was not. Cephas was not. Neither was Calvin. Neither was Wesley. Neither was Keller. Neither was MacArthur. Whoever you want to list. To affiliate with someone so strongly that that person's even name becomes your identity that I am a this or I am a that Paul says that's dangerous it's spiritually unhealthy it will distract you from the main thing it lessens the power of the cross if you have a a tag or a name or a teaching that you cling to so strongly and that name and that tag and that teaching means nothing to anybody outside the church that don't know of Christ hold that loosely be thankful for it be grateful that God has gifted men through the ages and women and all through church history and even now we have teachers that we can respect and look to and thank God for their gifting and the grace of God that's at work in them but do not identify yourself as one of them. Your main identity is found in Christ. His last rhetorical question is, were you baptised in the name of Paul? Paul expressed his extreme disappointment with this one in particular. I'm grateful I didn't baptise any of you. Actually, I did. There's some, I don't remember all of you. That's how much it mattered to him. It didn't matter. Who baptised you does not matter. I know of people close to me who were baptised by someone who died in prison for horrific crimes. It didn't matter. Baptism for a follower of Christ is meaningful, it's special, it's biblical, it's important. But Paul's main mission, as he gets to in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptise. Paul practised baptism, he taught baptism... He had a strong understanding of it. He did do it, encouraged others to do it, but that was not his main mission. His main purpose was as one sent by Jesus to proclaim Jesus. Anything else would lessen the power of the cross. When you begin to add things and people to the faith, you lessen the faith. You weaken it. So what does all this mean for us? It certainly means we shouldn't link our faith to a person, a movement, a denomination. All those things come to an end. Link your faith to Christ alone. Link your identity to Christ alone. We learn that true unity doesn't demand uniformities we spoke about, but unity and purpose and of mind have the same mind, the same judgment. To have that, we need to have the mind of Christ, as Philippians 2 talks about. We're to seek unity in the priority of the gospel. We're going to see that in the next few chapters. We proclaim Jesus. There's a phrase said by many people, and it's a true one to hold on to, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and all things love. 
there are some things that we can't let go of, that we will not compromise on. We have to be united in those. There's some things that we hold with open hands. They're non-essential. But they're not worth fighting over either. So here's just a few maybe points of application. It's not just a matter of avoiding things, but be, be cautious in any position or teaching that's not Christ-centred is, is going to make your life, your spiritual life, shallow. Uh, immature, you'll be short-sighted and, and self-focused if your position is not Christ-centered. So mm. what do we do? I think Paul is instructing us we need to grow deeper in our understanding of the person, work and authority of Christ. Grow deeper in your understanding of the person, work and authority of Christ. Get equipped. Grow in your discernment. Grow in your discernment of who influences you. Who do you listen to? What do you spend your most of your time in? And ultimately, I think part of the power of the gospel is it transforms our hearts of selfishness. Think of yourself less and of Christ more. You won't be able to fail in your other relationships if you are thinking of Christ and proclaiming him more in your own mind as you then seek to live out your faith. So the caution from this first portion of 1 Corinthians is that we would empty the cross of its power when we align and identify ourselves with various speakers, teachers, influences so strongly that we divide from other Christians who do not do the same. What we count as powerful means nothing if Christ's cross and resurrection is not proclaimed in our words, in our lives, and in our church. So let's proclaim <coughs> him. He's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for your grace. Well, thank you for this instruction from Paul that has come from you and comes with your authority. That to be your church and to be your people, we must proclaim you. We must proclaim your name. We must proclaim your work. Forgive us for the things we do fight over that are often so nonsensical and non-essential. Bind us together. <coughs> bring us together for the sake and name of Jesus. Beautiful name.